Welcome to Break Away From The Pack. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Finishing School, completing your professional education. Welcome to this episode of Break Away From The Pack. Join in as Linda McGowan continues a conversation with Patrick Wayne, but this time, working life post-graduation. Hello, I'm Linda McGowan. And I'm with Patrick Wayne. Hello, Pat. Hi, how are you going? Very well, thank you. Thanks for coming in again. We talked previously about your experience as a recent graduate and as a, about to finish your engineering degree. And now that you've been working for a year and a half, I'd really like to explore with you your hopes and your dreams for your career now. Now that you've had some experience behind you, a little bit of you know, under the belt sort of weathering, looking forward... What are your hopes and dreams in your career, in this field? Not just for, not for anything else, Pat. Let's just stick to engineering. That's a, a really tough question to answer. And I probably, I probably would have thought after a year of doing what I do, I would have a good idea. But I suppose the, the one thing I know is I want to be good at my job and I want to be good enough that I can provide advice to people and help other people and make money doing my job and do it well and because I'm a sustainability consultant the the bottom line that I'm lucky to have that drives me really hard is to be doing the right thing and to be contributing to making buildings greener because I'm in the the built environment but in general making the world greener and you know hopefully at least helping with you know the this push that we need to make sure we're ready to survive this climate emergency we're in so i'm i have that bottom line which kind of is easy for me to think well i want to be really good at my job and i want to be changing the world and doing the right thing and all that in terms of shorter term how i want to be professionally this is a million things i look at a lot of the people around my mm-hmm. office some of the more senior engineers or the directors and they walk around with this air of confidence and they're always well well most of them are always well dressed and they they just seem to be able to answer questions like that like right on the spot and maybe they don't provide the most correct answer but they provide good answers and those are sort of things which i suppose it comes with experience and confidence i think i want to be an engineer or a, a professional like that um so yeah, hard question to answer. I'm sorry I don't have something no, no, more well, specific. I think it's like answering that question when you often do in interviews. You know, where do you see yourself in five years? You know, it's yeah. really. It's, I hate that question. I don't like asking uh, asking it myself. I just want to say, uh, well, hopefully, I still with a job. Yeah, I don't hopefully, know. if the industry alive. goes down, then yeah. hopefully, I'm still working, doing something. Yeah, I yeah, know it's a it's a tricky one, but I guess. Um, you know, we all have an idea of what engineering would be like, and you mm-hmm. chose it at high school. And yeah, but I had no idea what I was getting myself into. It was maybe this is something that is, you know, a discussion for another day. But when I picked an engineering course while I was in year twelve, as you know, my first preference course, and my first few preferences for engineering courses, I did it because the careers advisor looked at my subjects and was like, "Ah, oh, maths and physics." suppose you could be an engineer and I, and you know i was deep in year 12 and i was 17 and 
you know, when you're 17 and doing year 12, it's a million things to worry about. And so when they say maybe you could do engineering, I was like, great, I'll put that down. <laughs> One less thing to think about. Yeah, and now here I am and I'm an engineer. And when I put that course down, I had no idea what an engineer did. And I think for my first year of university, I still wasn't quite sure what an engineer did or what a mechanical engineer did. And then when I, when I was applying for the job that I have now, I really didn't know what someone in my role did or even what my company I didn't fully understand what we did in my industry so even now I I kind of I look at some of the people in my company and I wonder what exactly do they do or how do they do it how's it relevant to what we do so I'm not sure I've forgotten what the question was why I'm (laughs) well but now that you're here and you've been you know you've you've graduated after six years Mm -hmm. of work You've been working for a year and a half. Do you like engineering? Are you glad that careers advisor said, hmm, engineering, not accounting? Yes, I am. Okay, well, that's that's a a good thing because you're still paying (laughs) off your hex debt. Yeah, yeah. I think um, maybe that person recognised certain qualities like behaviours in me, which I think I share with a lot of engineers, which are maybe they fit into this traditional idea of what engineers are like, which is where we love numbers and spreadsheets and we're very methodical and practical and um, I can, you know, take one small issue and kind of go down a rabbit hole trying to sort it out and you take this very methodical, practical approach, which I don't think I could do or even had relevant skills like that in year 12 as someone could have seen in me, but I suppose my tertiary education has helped me to develop those and now I'm Mm. developing them more in my in my role for six years it's a long time to be studying something if you don't really like it yeah I feel like I feel like yeah it was the right decision to do engineering and I like what I do and I feel like I can be good at what I do Uh, I don't feel like I'm very good at it now because I'm you know new to my role and I've only been doing it for a year and a bit but I do feel like there's a clear path for me to to be as good as I want to be so I'm really lucky in that sense Lucky, but uh, lucky also because you're prepared, you're planned, you're working hard and you're taking advice. So I think it's not so much luck, Pat, that's around you at the moment. What's the link between mechanical engineering to sustainability? Because I don't think of, I think of mechanical engineering as something a lot sort of removed from sustainability. Yeah, well, sustainability is, is a ginormous umbrella with a million things under it. For my job i work at a consulting company um and we're building services consultants so all the projects we work on are mostly new buildings that are being built and right now most of our work is office buildings and then we also do existing buildings stuff whether that be upgrading their services or assessing their services or a new tenant moves into the building we do the fit out for them that kind of thing so relevant to my role on the sustainability team in my company, understanding how the mechanical systems work in a building and then understanding how you can improve them to save energy, to, um, or I suppose not to save energy, to, the better way to put it would be to make sure that energy isn't being wasted. That's probably the strongest connection to sustainability because if you're in a, if you have a building and for whatever reason the mechanical system isn't designed great or it's old and it's not performing well then it's likely it's using up a whole lot more energy than it needs to which 
uh, I mean, one downfall, which I think is the one that clients are more interested in hearing about, is you're spending a whole lot of money mm. that you don't need to, whether that be on your, your bill or your services costs or whatever. The, the, the other big thing, which is the one that matters, is that you're using energy that doesn't need to be used. You're burning... I mean, you're involved in the burning of fossil fuels that don't need to be burnt and you're losing heat or whatever else it is to the atmosphere that can't be recaptured. So that's how it relates to sustainability. And that's the lucky thing is that because my company, we we provide a whole lot of engineering disciplines, mechanical and electrical being the two biggest ones, but then fire protection services, fire engineering, acoustics, um, security, comms, it's set hydraulics etc 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 i get a taste of how everything relates to sustainability which is something i'm still getting my head around and learning as i go but i suppose now the skills i learned in my mechanical engineering degree are becoming less and less directly applicable because i'm i suppose learning how to have an understanding of every discipline and having a holistic understanding of how the building works and how we can make it more sustainable and you know save the world and save money for the client okay well that makes sense because i couldn't get that link initially so now that you've been in this role for a little while do you look around you at the team and and do you have a, a clear sense of what your progression could be to move up in the company um not Mm, I can look around my team and it's a small team. There's uh, in my office six of us and then in the company there's I think about 20, between 20 and 25 of us and that's in a company of about 600 people, I think. Um, So we're one of the smaller teams, which I suppose makes it harder to see a, a clear path to understand all the stepping stones to move up i can look around my team and see the kind of engineer i want to be or the people i want to emulate um but it's yeah i still don't really have a strong understanding of you know what it takes for when let's say someone in one position moves on how the decision is made about who fills that position or if the company needs to recruit outside um and find someone else to come in i suppose i mean my understanding is that let's say a manager leaves the company who's going to fill that role they look at the team under them and see if anyone has you know is ready to to step up and take that on and then if not i suppose you recruit outside but other than that i'm really not sure what do you think being ready would take on that role would mean i don't know it's hard to answer i think i suppose that's no, a good question. That's a good way of answering it, though, yeah. because when I, I know accounting graduates and young accountants, and you know, they're often surprised when they come from a big firm. Mm-hmm. When I say to them, the bosses have already worked out who's interested in being promoted or not, mm-hmm. and they're quite surprised by that. They go, "What? You know, what did you think? Rolling up nine to five in a suit made you a candidate for management? You know, like that's just right. doing a job. Yeah. Like, what do you think you have to do to step up?" And I think what's often misunderstood is, is that you have to be not aggressive in your, in your seeking of higher positions, but you have to certainly let your management know that should an opportunity arise for a position or for some extra skill training, you know, after a due time of actually learning the skills and, you know, looking around and being part of a team, mm-hmm. 
I really think if you're serious about your career, you need to talk to your your management, to your leader, your team leader, whatever the, your structure that you work in is, and say, what do I need to do to help you do your job better mm-hmm. and to help me, you know, progress in this company? What can I do for you? And what can that what can you what can that do for me mm-hmm. in my broader skill set yeah because unless you tell them that you're ready people don't know they're not mind readers right and there's always going to be someone in the team who quietly won't tell you over the coffee you know around the coffee table or you know at the fridge when they're making their uh, lunch that mm. they've had a quiet word and said hey this is what i'm doing because it's very personal and it's quite competitive in, mm-hmm. a, in a firm and you're never sure whether you're going to be laughed at or or taken down or you know everyone's a little bit nervous in that role so it's often something that you don't talk about but it's something that the people who are serious will have done yeah yeah so that's... you can't be you can't just sit back and wait for someone to tap you on the shoulder and say hey we like you you turn up for work every day and you don't make a mess in the kitchen can we make you a manager right right and yeah i mean this happens in my company i'm sure plenty of other companies is you can look around the office at 7 p.m or 8 p.m on any weeknight or even a friday night and there'll be some people who are there working and i guess as a young person sometimes it's in the back of my mind is that the kind of thing that i should be doing to show that i'm committed and really trying to you know make the most of the opportunity i have so then maybe later on i'm considered for for another position or something but then someone i was talking to someone in hr in my company and and he said no one talks about who's back at 7 p.m or 8 p.m or 9 p.m and the directors don't know who does that and they don't they don't care if you're willing to work hard that's great but to assert yourself to move up or when you're being assessed on your performance it's not about you know coming in early and leaving late or wearing a suit jacket every day it's about a lot of other things and that's something i think i fell into that trap when i started was looking around and thinking oh well some people work late all the time maybe that's what i have to do to prove that that i'm working hard i don't and think anyone in the hr department's ever worked past their time but maybe i'm wrong <laughs> yeah maybe i don't know much about uh, hr because i don't have one but i think what everyone has to realize when they've graduated mm-hmm. that it's like an apprenticeship you've you've come out of uni or tertiary with a set of skills but they're as yet untested mm-hmm. they're they're theoretical to you to a point but everyone has to do like an apprenticeship you have mm-hmm. to learn how to communicate how to apply those skills in the real world to real life positions and all those other things that happen in a workplace about how you work colleague collectively with colleagues with management with you know how you respond to clients is you know how you write emails mm-hmm. how you how you manage yourself and your workflow and all that has to be learned in a sort of an apprenticeship mm-hmm. and if you think that you can learn your job and make mistakes and then have all that fixed up in a nine to five role you're probably kidding yourself mm-hmm. and the people who take themselves very and their career seriously might be working late because they've stuffed something up so monumentally that they're embarrassed to have their boss pay for it again or to have you know if you're charging a client if you're working on a client matter 
you know, this this is money that, you know, well, how can you charge your time to a client? Why should your boss pay you twice to do the same work? Right. And so I, I don't look for people to work late as being a great employee, but if you're learning something and you're taking time, your boss, your management structure is providing skills for you and resources for you. Mm-hmm. But if you don't value that by, because that's taking up their time to teach you that. So they've got to do their work at other times. So if you're sitting there going, well, I've got to go home because it's time I, I don't need to work late. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not paid to. You're probably in the wrong in the wrong industry, in, yeah. let alone in the wrong career. Go and get a job where there's no pressure and no expectations because there is an expectation that you will learn and you will become productive. Yeah. And for some people who never make, I've never met one, but for some, and I'm certainly not one, I've made heaps of mistakes and the hours I worked represent some, when I was a young accountant, you know, I was mortified and mm-hmm. I wanted to fix up the work that I'd stuffed up on my time so that I could present it to my boss and say, there you are. Yeah. You've only paid me once for doing the work two, three, or sometimes, you know, four times and I didn't get a concept. Yeah. And I didn't want my boss to pay for that. Ah, that's a hundred, I can totally relate. So, you know, that's why sometimes people are working late because yeah. they're trying to progress, they're trying to learn and better themselves because you can't do it in nine to five all yeah. the time. Yeah, spot on. I can 100% relate to that. And I, again, I don't know if it's the same in your industry or your company, but we we are certainly, because we're consultants, we're, you know, we're charging clients based on the time, the time we spend on their project or on a project. And it comes down to the hour and we all have our per hour cost rate and we're assessed I think we're assessed quite often based on if you know in on the amount of hours you work on the project if you're really making that money back and some more or if it's at least effective rather than money going down the drain because you're not working as productively as you could and that's something which for the majority of the time that I've been working so far I don't think I've really had my head around and I certainly don't now and I've only you know in due time become more aware of how critical that is as a criteria but at the same time I feel like something I said in my interviews when I was going for graduate positions was communication is paramount because that was something I learned in one of my undergrad work experience roles and the feedback I'm and I thought I'm you know I'm so good at communicating and I'm really on top of it and that's why maybe being a consultant is a good path for me. And then in my first year and a half, I've had to, um, I suppose, be very receptive to feedback on it and then understand that I really had no idea about how to communicate professionally, how to communicate to a client, how to be an active listener. And so those are all things that, even though I, I think I said and I thought I knew that communication is is almost above all else the biggest skill that we should be developing and then reflecting something which I guess I have to come to terms with that I have a long way to go Um, we're all learning that Pat yeah it's a constant journey don't worry yeah but yeah these are all the things that are in my mind as a as a as a grad in my company as a young engineer at the same time it's almost like a like a mess in my head and I think what am I actually being assessed against you know, I know as a as a grad, to some degree, I think I'm a protected species in that for the first two years, you're not going to get dropped unless you're really, 
really a drop kick. But that doesn't mean that I should just perform good enough knowing that, mm. you know, I've got to get out of jail free card. Yeah. I really should be taking the absolute opposite approach. Totally. Because if you're serious, you're exactly right when you mentioned before, if there's an hourly rate, there's a recovery cost, and that's how ultimately everybody is judged, yeah. ultimately. And, and you're right, there is a time when for any graduate or inexperienced professional, mm. there's a lead time. But if your bosses and, you, and the team are looking to recover your cost, mm-hmm. so your wages and your super and everything else that you get paid, plus your space in that office mm-hmm. and the resources that go towards that, and then making money for the person that's or the business that's employed you. Mm-hmm. So that's like a try to in accounting, it's um, talked about the three times rule. So whatever your salary and wages and super is multiply that by three and they're looking to recover that from you right. as just a base and so if you want a pay rise you better be sure that you're not just giving yourself a job or worse not even paying for your own time mm-hmm. after that period of time of learning so there's a balancing act the more that you can learn now means that when you do get into that time when you are being judged because now you've had that time and the support and mm-hmm. the experience to learn if you're not making enough money for that firm, they can't employ you. Yeah. And if you're, you could be the best engineer in the world, but if you can't deliver a project on time and on budget, they can't afford you. Yes. Because no one's going to pay you just because you're a great dude and, you know, you know about sustainability or you know about accounting. If they can't, if you can't get it to a client in a deliverable way, for the right price they're not Mm going to pay and so you know it's very hard for people to get their mind around I think as a graduate that there is an accountability and it's subtle and -hmm. it may not be spoken about enough Mm -hmm. but it's there because if you if you can't learn while you know what you can in that two-year period if it is a two-year period and that's a long time I would have said realistically I couldn't carry a graduate for more than a year without them at least being able to start covering their wages before they can contribute because we're a small firm. In a big firm, there's a little bit maybe more leeway, but then other, you know, there's other issues that come with that. But if you're not covering your time in a recoverable sense, then why would they employ you? Yeah, yeah, spot on. What are you adding to the team? Yeah, it's something... You've got to get that. It's something I didn't have in my mind probably for my first... I suppose six months Mm. or didn't even really understand and then maybe I had a conversation with someone where they spoke about how the finances on a project work and I thought oh actually now I see that my time is money and you know I I need to deliver within a certain amount of hours worked on the project but it's still something I'm getting my head around and it's a bit scary if I'm you know learning something new like a, a new um, technical skill or something that you know we do on a project that I'm doing for the first time I know that I'm taking minimum three times longer to do it than someone who's done it a few times before and I know that a lot of my time I go back asking for help or guidance or I get stuck on something and then I need to go and ask questions and it's a little bit scary being in the back of my head thinking you know, if I take a week to do this task, which really someone else on my team nowadays can do in half a day or a day, does that look really bad on me? And, you know, a lot of people provide these reassurances of, 
you're a grad, you're doing it for the first time, you've got to learn somehow, etc., etc. At the end of the day, I really have no idea where the line is drawn when it's like, well, let's look at how long it's taking now to do to these things. Is it too long? You know, is this something we need to really do something about or do we need to consider this person being expendable, you know, in the near future if it comes down to that? These are things I have no idea about and it's in the back of my head and I find it kind of stressful. At the same time, it provides a healthy stress in that it's telling me I need to stay on top of everything and try and remind myself to be working productively and, you know, be able to wrap things up. Maybe they're not perfect, but they're good enough and they are what they're worth, those kind of things. I think the first time you do things is always interesting. It's when you take all the time, three weeks, if you don't improve, Pat. I think that's when management look at you and that's when it comes back to that communication that you mentioned before always talk to your team leader share you know share this with your team or your team leader to say hey this one took me three weeks or a week and but next time i'm doing it it'll be done less and and as accurate and so you can you know you can always teach speed but you can't teach accuracy you have to you have to get it right get the concepts right and and for most businesses most of what we do has been done before so there should be a process or you can write it down make notes and go back to it so that you don't have to keep reinventing the wheel if you don't do something you know for a while after having done other things and you've got to go back to that process if you've got to start again because you didn't make notes or you didn't understand it deeply which we all have to do things spasmodically that we've done before but it's about how you recover your time from looking at your notes or your past experience and you know not taking the same amount of time each time you do something right that's 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 what we're looking for in in our staff particularly graduates is that you get it it might take a while you might make mistakes that's okay but you learn and you get better each time you do it so that you can be then productive and pass on that skill to somebody else and procedures and systems come a big part of that right. and following it. There's a reason McDonald's do so well around the world. They can take a 15-year-old in any country, anywhere in the world, and produce the same product in any other place. Yeah. It's because they follow a system and a process. And if we can get 15-year-olds to do it, I'm sure as experienced, you know, older people we can learn to recognize those processes that can save us some time if we write them down and go back to them again when we need them. And when you're learning, make notes, make notes, make notes, make notes, make notes. And when you're not sure about it, go back and make a note Yeah. and refer back to it until you don't need them anymore. Yeah. 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 I suppose, yeah. I mean, what comes to my mind is McDonald's are a huge company and, they can spend millions of dollars on training processes and um, whatever else that makes them be able to replicate the same situation with any 15-year-old. How, I guess, how do you deal with that when you're at a much smaller company? Let's say you're five people or mm-hmm. even Still processes. People. How, you, how you answer the phone, how you deliver the product, how you standardise an email response, those things, you, if you have a process, if it's mm-hmm. something that you have to do again copy it make it the same right you know it, there's it's an amazing when you look at your workplace 
how much of what we do is a process, has been done before, and for all in, all businesses, they want a standard deliverable product. They want to make sure that when customer A gets their product and customer B gets their product, they're the same quality, the same look, the same you know professional presentation. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, they they can't guarantee service. They can't charge the price. Yeah. So there has to be basically underlying all this a process and a system. And I would have thought as an engineer. Um, probably you know equal to accountants we get that we get that most of what we do is a process there's obviously some skill and that's where the confidence comes in confidence comes from being you know planning and being prepared yeah and you do that because you've got the experience and behind you and you've learned from it but everything there's a lot of things that you do that can be replicated and written down as a process it will save you that time if you go back to that process yeah. And if you can systemize it for your team and everyone gets a better, more deliverable product, that's a great step forward for your yeah. team. That's something, yeah, that we, I think we strive to do and the managers in each team are sort of the champions of this is um, creating repeatable processes or yeah. improving on the ones we have. And yeah, something that's from the, I think the first, first task I had when I started as a grad, I was given previous examples and because as a consulting company our product is often our drawings or our reviews of other people's drawings or our specification documents um, which could you know they can be like 500 pages of really specific stuff for all the contractors to read and then do properly I suppose I've always had examples to match and then something that someone said to me i think in my first week was do it like this if not have a reason not to and so if i did it differently it had to be for a good reason whether that was because of that project or it was because i thought i had an improvement on that process so yeah that's something that i think i think it's instilled in us early at my company and it's part of the nature of our work is to if we've done something right to replicate that and try and improve on it. Um, but then there's also some things which, you know, I, I can't go back to an example of how to have a difficult discussion with a client or a contractor because I don't have recordings of mm-hmm. when people say like, oh, I had to call the contractor and ask them for these things even though we haven't spoken to them for six months. They weren't happy about that because they had to spend time doing it. I don't have like recordings of those conversations that I can go back to and then try and replicate how to deal with them. So there's things like that that come up where I suppose you learn by doing or you try and get all the advice you can and then you learn by doing. Or you can role play them with someone who has had to do that and you can have them be the cranky, angry client and you try and manage that process. So there's always ways if, as we went back to the earlier part of this podcast, you communicate, mm-hmm. you talk to your team and you talk to the mentors around you, you will get better in your career. You will succeed. And uh, so thank you very much for Pat. I've really enjoyed talking to you about your career. And I'm, I'm sure that with uh, your dedication and your drive and your actual enjoyment of your job, which is mm-hmm. really cool, that you'll do well. So uh, thank you again for coming in. Yeah, cheers. I hope, you, I hope you're right. I mean, if you're not right, I'll... I'll 
sell everything I own and I'll become a hermit or something. <laughs> There'll be an alternative plan, path. Plan B. Yeah, plan B. <laughs> Always good to have plan B. Yeah. Thanks, Pat. Cheers. You've been listening to Broke Away From The Pack. To be kept up to date about future episodes, please hit subscribe. And if you'd like us to cover off on any particular issue concerning you and your professional education, please let us know and we'll do our best to answer it. Thanks for listening.